and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor. Thank you, as always, for listening. In the last episode of our series on the Ukrainian War of Independence, we covered events from 1914 to the outbreak of the war itself in late 1917. The First World War brought devastation to Ukraine, situated as it was between the borders of the Russian and Austro-Hungarian empires. Initial Russian victories against the Central Powers on the Southwestern Front enabled the Russian army to occupy the Kingdom of Galicia Lodomeria, a crown land of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the eastern half of which was inhabited primarily by Ukrainians. The occupation of Galicia enabled the Russians to stamp out what had become a vibrant center of Ukrainian culture and language. Russian authorities engaged in a widespread campaign of repression in the region, banning the use of the Ukrainian language in public, arresting and deporting Ukrainian political activists, and so on. The occupation of Galicia was not fated to last for long, however, as a counteroffensive by the Central Powers pushed Russian forces out of the region, beginning what was known as the Great Retreat, an unmitigated disaster for the Russian army wherein a million men and thousands of square miles of territory were lost. The monarchy's continued gross mismanagement of the war effort led to its overthrow in February 1917. Following the collapse of the Russian monarchy, the national minorities of the former empire wasted little time in beginning to exercise their right to national self-determination, the Ukrainians included. Mere days after the abdication of Tsar Nicholas II, a group of politicians and activists in the city of Kiev founded the Ukrainian Central Rada, or Council. From the very beginning, the Central Rada had a troubled relationship with the new provisional government of the Russian Republic based in Petrograd. At this juncture, the Ukrainians did not aspire to complete independence. Rather, the object of mainstream Ukrainian politics was Ukrainian autonomy within a liberalized and decentralized reconfiguration of the Russian Empire. The politicians in Petrograd, for their various reasons, were not inclined to tolerate what they perceived as Ukrainian separatism, and treated the requests coming in from Kiev for autonomy with silence. In June 1917, the Central Rada issued its first universal, a bold and unilateral decree proclaiming Ukrainian autonomy. The first universal drew widespread condemnation from nearly all the active political parties in Russia, save for one, the Bolsheviks, led by revolutionary firebrand Vladimir Lenin. The Bolsheviks rejected the very idea of nationalism, dedicating themselves instead to the spread of revolutionary socialism not just throughout Russia, but the entire world. While the other Russian political parties, including the other socialists, such as their counterparts the Mensheviks, Equivocated on the national question, the Bolsheviks were the only party to take a hard line on the issue. They held that all nations should have the right to self-determination, even to the point of separation. Lenin and the Bolsheviks harshly criticized the provisional government for obstructing the rights of the nations of the former Russian Empire, Ukraine especially, to national self-determination. In July, the provisional government was forced to give a qualified recognition of the Central Rada's legitimacy, precipitating in a crisis in the cabinet and prompting all the cadet Reed constitutional democrat members of the cabinet to resign. A further crisis a couple months later resulted in the resignation of Prime Minister Prince Georgi Lvov. In Kiev, it was hoped that the new government, led by the leader of the moderate Trudovic faction of the Socialist Revolutionary Party, Alexander Kerensky, would be more amenable to Ukrainian demands. This was not necessarily the case. Kerensky and his government were, much like the previous government, eager to see the ongoing First World War fought to a victorious conclusion. While Kerensky was not necessarily hostile to the idea entirely, Ukrainian autonomy, it was believed, was a threat to the success of the Russian war effort. 
Kerensky encouraged the Ukrainians to defer the question of Ukraine's future relationship to Russia to the convening of the All-Russian Constituent Assembly, an elective body which would consist of representatives from the whole of the former Russian Empire, and who would be tasked with devising a new constitution for the Republic. For the time being, at least, Ukrainian political leaders were willing to comply, and made no further drastic actions in the hope that the Constituent Assembly would solve both Russia and Ukraine's problems. The Bolsheviks overthrew the provisional government on the night of October 25, 1917. Few in Kiev lamented the ousting of Kerensky and his ministers. They believed that the Bolsheviks would prove easier to cooperate with, and at first it seemed that this might be the case. As a week after the October Revolution, the Council of People's Commissars, or the, or the Sovnarkom, acting as the new executive body of the Russian Republic, issued the Declaration of the Rights of the Peoples of Russia, a document which promised the, quote, right of the peoples of Russia to self-determination, even to the point of separation and the formation of an independent state, end quote. It was in this context that the Central Rada issued its third universal, proclaiming the Ukrainian People's Republic, or UNR. The Third Universal explicitly rejected the notion of nominal Ukrainian independence, but it also made the Central Rada the sole arbiter of political authority in the nine Ukrainian provinces. This, the Bolsheviks were unwilling to tolerate, and so a state of war was declared between the Bolshevik-led Russian state and the UNR. The reasons for the seemingly sudden about-face in Bolshevik policy regarding Ukraine are rather complex. A series of ideological, political, economic, and military factors fed into the Sovnarkom's decision-making process. In his manifesto to the Ukrainian people, with an ultimatum to the Central Rada, Lenin accused the Central Rada of, quote, "...conducting, behind a screen of national phrases, a double-dealing bourgeois policy, which has long been expressed in the Rada's non-recognition of the Soviets and of Soviet power in the Ukraine." End quote. To be more specific, Lenin leveled three accusations against the Central Rada that they were countermanding the authority of the Soviets, that they were disarming Soviet soldiers in Ukrainian territory, and that they were aiding and abetting the nascent anti-Bolshevik white movement that was coalescing in territory adjacent to that claimed by the UNR. Lenin demanded that the Central Rada cease these activities at once and cooperate fully with Petrograd in the fight against counter-revolutionary forces in southern Russia. The Central Rada was placed in quite the unenviable position, to accept Lenin's demands would drag Ukraine into a fight that was not perceived to be its own, and, moreover, it would, according to Mikhail Khrushchevsky, who was the Ukrainian prime minister at the time, quote, effectively destroy the reality of Ukrainian autonomy, end quote. A negative response, or lack of response, therefore, would mean war with the Bolshevik-led Soviet Russian state. The mounting hostilities between Kiev and Petrograd put the Ukrainian Bolsheviks in a difficult position. Their dedication to the principle of internationalism was unwavering, and naturally they would side with their Russian counterparts rather than the Ukrainian nationalists in the impending conflict. The Ukrainian Bolsheviks plotted to overthrow the Central Rada, and they saw the upcoming All-Ukrainian Congress of Soviets scheduled to convene on December 4th as their best opportunity. They hoped to influence the Soviets into making a break with the Central Rada, but they soon found that they constituted a minority in the Ukrainian Soviets the Bolsheviks were only able to muster some 80 delegates out of 2,000 total. The fact of the matter was that Ukraine, despite recent efforts to achieve industrialization, remained a fundamentally rural and agrarian region. The Bolsheviks' primary constituency, the urban workers, were simply not numerous enough to command a majority. The Ukrainian Soviets largely consisted of peasant deputies, who were aligned with the social revolutionaries and who supported the Central Rada. 
The news of Lenin's ultimatum and the imminent Russian invasion, of which the Ukrainian Bolsheviks were not informed of in advance, further complicated matters. Vasil Shakrahai, a Ukrainian Bolshevik leader, tried to defend Lenin's actions to his fellow Ukrainians, but privately, Shakrahai and his fellow Bolsheviks despaired at the situation of an all-but-inevitable fratricidal war. While they remained steadfastly loyal to Lenin and the party, they were of the belief that Lenin should have taken action against the Central Rada sooner. Quote, now that Rada has dropped deep roots, we will have to fight against almost entire Ukrainian people, and not just the Rada. End quote. In the end, the Ukrainian Bolsheviks were left with little choice but to walk out of the All-Ukrainian Congress of Soviets, which ultimately voted to aff affirm its support of the Central Rada. On the night of December 20th, the Ukrainian Bolsheviks secretly departed Kiev for the eastern industrial city of Kharkov, where a Congress of Workers' Soviets in eastern Ukraine was also convening. The Kievan Bolsheviks found the delegates of this Congress were far more sympathetic to their cause. They were, therefore, easily able to co-opt the Congress, renaming it, quite confusingly, the First All-Ukrainian Congress of Workers, Soldiers, and Peasants' Deputies. In Petrograd, the failure of the Central Rada to accede to Lenin's demands was taken as proof of the reactionary nature of the Ukrainian national movement. On December 15, 1917, future Soviet head of state Joseph Stalin, who at the time was serving as the Commissar for Nationalities in the Council of People's Commissars, wrote, quote, The Rada, or rather its general secretariat, is a government of traitors to socialism, who call themselves socialists in order to deceive the masses. The Rada, or rather its general secretariat, is a bourgeois government, which, in alliance with Kaledin, is fighting the Soviets, end quote. On December 4th, the Sovnarkom, without bothering to wait an official response from the Central Rada to Lenin's ultimatum, dispatched some 30,000 soldiers, a motley assortment of Red Guards and regular army units, across the Ukrainian border. They were led by Vladimir Antonov Ovsinko. Antonov Ovsinko was an ethnic Ukrainian born in Chernigov in 1883. He joined the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party, the predecessor organization to the Bolshevik Party, in 1902. During the October Revolution, Antonov Ovsinko led the storming of the Winter Palace, a pivotal moment of the revolution, and one that took on a near-mythical status in Soviet historiography. Once Petrograd was secured, Antonov Ovsinko was placed in charge of the succinctly named Group of Forces in Battle with the Counter-Revolution in the South of Russia. This was a military formation initially tasked with suppressing the anti-Bolshevik revolt of General Alexei Kaledin in the Don region of southern Russia, but was soon repurposed for use against the UNR. Antonov Ovsinko's chief of staff was a man named Mikhail Muraviev. Muraviev was a former Tsarist officer and veteran of the Russo-Japanese War, as well as of the First World War. Not much has been written about Muraviev, but all sources indicate that he was a talented military commander with a bit of a cruel streak, which we will see played out later on. Following the October Revolution, Muraviev defected and offered his services to the Bolshevik government. The Bolsheviks, who were in desperate need of military officers, readily accepted the former Tsarist commander's offer. Muraviev went on to direct the Red Guard's defense of Petrograd from forces loyal to former Prime Minister Alexander Kerensky in the days immediately following the October Revolution. Soviet forces crossed the border with Ukraine in early December and were quickly able to seize the relatively undefended city of Kharkov by December 22nd. With the backing of the Red Guards, the Ukrainian Bolsheviks who made up the All-Ukrainian Congress of Soviets, which had been founded in the city earlier in the month, proclaimed the creation of a rival Ukrainian government, the Ukrainian People's Republic of Soviets, on December 25th. 
There were fierce debates among the members of this new government as to what form the government should take, and what its relationship to the government of Petrograd should be. The majority faction were the centralists, led by figures such as Georgi Pyatkov and Yevgenia Bosch, who argued that Ukraine and the Ukrainian branch of the Bolshevik party should be largely subordinated to Petrograd. Imposing them were the Federalists, led by Vasil Shakrahai, who repurposed the formerly mainstream position in Ukrainian nationalist circles of a federation with Russia for the new political situation. Debates between the Federalists and Centralists characterized the early days of the Ukrainian Soviet Republic's existence. For instance, Bosch, a self-described ultra-centralist, argued that, quote, in the Ukraine, there is not a national struggle but a class struggle, and there is only a national cover with which the bourgeoisie conceals the class movement, end quote. Shakrahai refuted her, writing, quote, that the bourgeoisie conceals its policies by the means of the national flag is entirely natural, not only for the imperialistic bourgeoisie. The bourgeoisie always utilizes the protective coloration not only of nationalism but of socialism. Does this give us grounds for saying that socialism is but a bourgeois trend? We need to knock out of the hands of the bourgeoisie the weapon of the national struggle, which can yet be revolutionary. End quote. Essentially, what Bosch was arguing was that the Ukrainian national movement was essentially a bourgeois phenomenon, a, quote, creation of intellectuals intent on destroying the ethnic unity between little and great Russia in the interests of Russia's enemies, end quote, whereas Shakrahai was arguing that the national sentiments of the Ukrainians could be harnessed for their revolutionary potential, but only if the Bolsheviks were willing to claim the mantle of Ukrainian nationalism. These internecine debates within the Soviet Ukrainian government were, in the immediate term at least, largely inconsequential. The government had no roots in the local population, no army, and no internal coherence to speak of. Of its 13 members, only four had any command of the Ukrainian language whatsoever. The fact of the matter was that the Ukrainian Soviet government was more or less entirely dependent on their Russian comrades, specifically the army of Antonov Ovsinko and Moraviev, to expand its area of jurisdiction and to instantiate Soviet power in Ukraine. These facts notwithstanding, to characterize this conflict, the Soviet-Ukrainian War as it has been called in historiography, as an imperialist war between Russia and Ukraine, would be to ignore the nuances of the situation. As I've hopefully demonstrated by now, the conflict in Ukraine was an immensely complex and multifaceted one. The Ukrainian people were by no means united behind the central rada in the face of Soviet aggression. As a matter of fact, thousands of ethnic Ukrainians fought on both sides of this war. In Ukraine, the army of Antonov Ovsinko and Moraviev outnumbered the forces loyal to the Central Rada by a ratio of 2 to 1, and it was growing stronger by the day, as Ukrainian units defected to the Soviets. Initially, Ukrainian forces were 15,000 strong, made up mostly of formerly demobilized ethnic Ukrainian soldiers of the Russian army, volunteers, and the so-called Free Cossacks, who were led by the Secretary for Military Affairs, Simone Petlura. I've mentioned Petlura in passing in the first episode of the series, but now I think it's time he received a proper introduction. Simone Vasilyevich Petlura was born in Poltava, a city in eastern Ukraine in 1879. His parents were solidly upper-middle class, and Petlura initially had aspirations to become a priest. However, he was expelled from the seminary in 1901 for illicit political activities. Petlura was an early member of the Revolutionary Ukrainian Party, and after a brief stint in a Russian prison for possession of anti-Tsarist literature, he moved to Lemberg in Austrian Galicia. There, he took up the profession of journalism, 
writing and editing articles for the Ukrainian language press in the city. Following the revolution of 1905 in Russia, a general amnesty was proclaimed, and Petlura moved first to Kiev and then to St. Petersburg. In the years between the revolutions, Petlura became perhaps the most prolific journalist in Ukraine, publishing over 15,000 articles in various Ukrainian language publications. During this time, Petlura also established a wide-ranging network of contacts within the Ukrainian national movement, which enabled him to maneuver himself into power following the establishment of the Central Rada. In May 1917, he was elected the chairman of the Ukrainian General Military Committee, and when war broke out in December 1917, Petlura, despite completely lacking in any military experience, found himself the top military official in Ukraine. Petlura and his army were not in an enviable position as the new year of 1918 began. Soviet forces were quickly overrunning the country and were rapidly approaching the capital of Kiev. Meanwhile, in Petrograd, the All-Russian Constituent Assembly finally convened in the afternoon of January 5, 1918. Elections to the Constituent Assembly had been held in November 1917, and had resulted in the SRs winning a plurality of the votes, 37.6%, and the vast majority of the seats, 324. The runners-up, by contrast, the Bolsheviks, won 23.3% of the popular vote and only 183 seats. In third place came the Ukrainian Socialist Revolutionaries, which constituted a party separate from the Russian Socialist Revolutionaries led by Viktor Chernov. The Ukrainian SRs under Khrushchevsky won an outright majority in all the provinces claimed by the UNR, constituting 12.7% of the overall popular vote and winning 110 seats. Among the delegates elected were Volodymyr Venichenko and Simon Petlura. The results of the Constituent Assembly could have very well posed an existential threat to the Bolshevik regime, but the Bolsheviks, despite having allowed the Constituent Assembly to convene at the agreed-upon time and place, had absolutely no intention of abiding by the results if they were not favorable to them. Lenin believed that the Soviets represented a higher form of revolutionary democracy than that of the Constituent Assembly. Through a combination of physical coercion and political maneuvering, the Bolsheviks managed to officially dissolve the body, thereby making the Third All-Russian Congress of Soviets the official governing body of Russia. The Russian Soviet Republic was born. The dissolution of the Constituent Assembly was the final straw for the Ukrainian nationalists. They had hoped, to the very end, that the Constituent Assembly would solve the thorny issue of Russo-Ukrainian relations. Now that the Constituent Assembly was no more and all of its decrees were declared null and void by the Soviet government, the Ukrainian nationalists were forced to take matters into their own hands and to declare themselves independent. This was certainly not a decision that was made lightly. In fact, most Ukrainian nationalists were still in favor of a federation with Russia, but the implacable hostility of the Bolsheviks to the Central Rada made cooperation between the two countries nearly impossible. Moreover, the Ukrainians, believing themselves to have no stake in the civil war that was brewing throughout the former Russian Empire, wished to stay out of the conflict. Again, Bolshevik hostility made Ukraine's involvement in the Russian civil war a matter of fact. It is with these facts in mind that on January 9th, 1918, only three days after the dissolution of the Constituent Assembly, the Central Rada issued its fourth and final universal. Whereas the first three universals of the Central Rada declared their clear and unequivocal intention for Ukraine to remain a part of Russia, the fourth universal did the exact opposite. Quote, From now on, the Ukrainian People's Republic is becoming self-existing, from no independent, sovereign state of the Ukrainian people. End quote. Khrushchevsky posits in his History of Ukraine 
that Ukraine had already achieved de facto independence with the Third Universal back in November of 1917, and that the Fourth Universal merely constituted a recognition of the actual situation on the ground. Although the Ukrainian People's Republic was now independent, the situation on the ground was looking rather dire. The Fourth Universal did not immediately result in the Ukrainians flocking to defend Ukrainian independence, as the members of the Central Rada had hoped. In fact, the Ukrainians were still encountering grave difficulties in mustering enough forces to withstand the Soviet onslaught. However, the Declaration of Independence gave the UNR the option to seek out support from abroad. Logically, the members of the Central Rada figured that this support would have to come from one of the two international alliances that were capable of holding Soviet Russia at bay. These were the two belligerent powers of the First World War, the Triple Entente and the Central Powers. Initially, the UNR inherited its pro-Entente disposition from the provisional government. At a meeting of the Central Rada held on December 25th, Acting Secretary of International Affairs Oleksandr Shulgin stated his opposition to the prospect of seeking a separate peace with the Central Powers, as Soviet Russia was currently in the process of doing, stating, quote, We should stand for peace and democracy in the whole world, end quote. The apparent liberal disposition of the Entente and its seeming lack of wide-ranging imperialist ambitions towards Ukraine made the prospect of cooperation with the Entente more palatable to the Ukrainian revolutionaries. However, this feeling of amity was not at all mutual. On a basic level, the Entente powers, despite their use of the rhetoric of the rights of nations to self-determination, were opposed to the prospect of Ukrainian independence. It was feared that an official recognition of Ukrainian independence was likely to alienate nationalist elements within Russia, whose alliance the Entente was anxious to maintain. Therefore, diplomatic overtures from the UNR to the Entente powers failed to produce concrete results. Only vague promises from the British and French that they would consider extending diplomatic recognition if the Ukrainians were able to keep the war effort on the Eastern Front going. When the RSFSR and the Central Powers agreed to an armistice on December 15th, the prospect of the Ukrainians continuing hostilities with the Central Powers on their own became a practically suicidal proposition. Foreign Minister Shulgin shifted his rhetoric, adopting the Bolsheviks' demands for a, quote, general peace without annexations or indemnities, end quote. It was in the interest of securing such an arrangement with the Central Powers that the Central Rada issued a missive on December 25th, essentially demanding to be admitted to the ongoing peace talks at Brest-Litovsk as an equal party, on the basis that, quote, peace should secure Ukraine's right to rightful self-determination, end quote, and that, quote, the political power of the Council of People's Commissars does not extend over Ukraine, end quote. Realizing the Ukrainians' intentions, the British and French scrambled to offer them a better deal, but by that time it was too late. The very next day, the Central Powers sent a telegram to Kiev, inviting the Ukrainians to send a delegation to the ongoing peace negotiations at Brest-Litovsk. The Central Rada replied affirmatively to the invitation and dispatched a four-man delegation to Brest-Litovsk with instructions to protect their interests. The Ukrainian delegation arrived there on January 1st, 1918. For context, Brest-Litovsk is a city that sits today within the Republic of Belarus, but at the time, it was in territory officially claimed by the UNR. However, at this time, neither Belarus nor Ukraine controlled the city. It was currently occupied by the German Imperial Army, and had been since the Great Retreat of 1915. From the beginning, Lenin and the Bolsheviks had campaigned on a promise to end Russia's disastrous involvement in the First World War. Now that they were in power, they intended to deliver on that promise. A temporary armistice with the Central Powers was signed on December 15, 1917, 
and negotiations for a conclusive peace treaty began in Brest-Litovsk the following week. The negotiations were still ongoing by the time the UNR decided to declare independence. This is because the proceedings were intentionally being sabotaged by the lead Russian negotiator, Commissar of Foreign Affairs Leon Trotsky. Trotsky and the rest of the Bolsheviks saw the October Revolution as being the first in a series of similar socialist revolutions across the world. Encouraged by signs of unrest in Berlin and Vienna, Trotsky participated in the negotiations under the assumption that the Austrian and German ruling classes would soon be overthrown themselves, and that the revolutionary governments of the former central powers and Russia would forge a new, lasting peace, one without annexations or indemnities. So Trotsky used every rhetorical tactic in the book to stall negotiations as much as possible. By inviting representatives of independent Ukraine to the peace talks, the diplomats of the central power saw the potential to play the Ukrainians and Russians off of one another, and to force the Bolsheviks to conclude a peace treaty within a time frame acceptable to them. As the UNR's delegates were arriving in Brest-Litovsk, the military situation in Ukraine itself only continued to deteriorate. While Ukrainian independence had broad support among the Ukrainian peasantry and intelligentsia, the urban working classes of Ukraine, the majority of whom were not ethnic Ukrainians, but considered themselves Russians or Jews, largely supported the Bolsheviks. As the Soviet army seized major industrial cities in southern and eastern Ukraine, they were joined by deserting soldiers and detachments of Red Guards who bolstered their ranks. The mounting unrest in Ukraine's urban centers culminated in the Kiev Arsenal Uprising of January 1918. As the Soviet forces quickly approached Kiev, the Ukrainian Bolsheviks and their supporters who remained in the city decided to stage an uprising there to assist them in its capture. The Bolsheviks chose to stage their uprising at the Kiev Arsenal factory, a munitions production plant located at the heart of the city. On the night of January 18th, Ukrainian authorities began to crack down on suspected Bolshevik activity. They raided the Arsenal factory, confiscated a number of weapons, and arrested a few Bolshevik agitators. This had the result of forcing the Kievan Bolsheviks to take action sooner than they would have liked to. On January 29th, a representative of the Kiev Soviet issued an ultimatum to the Central Rada to peacefully surrender the city to the Soviets. The Central Rada refused, and so, so in response, the Kiev Soviet declared a general strike the following day. The Ukrainian capital was effectively paralyzed. As the Central Rada scrambled to rally what forces it could to its defense, the Bolsheviks quickly seized key buildings throughout the city, in, coming within striking distance of the building that housed the Central Rada. As Kiev erupted into urban warfare, Soviet forces under General Muraviev continued their advance on the city. With communications from the capital having been cut, Ukrainian forces in the countryside were left to fend for themselves. On January 30th, forces loyal to the Central Rada attempted to mount a desperate defense against the Soviets at the crucial railway junction of Kruti, some 200 kilometers northeast of the capital. The defense of Kruti was hopeless from the beginning. Against a 6,000-strong Soviet army, the Central Rada could only manage to muster about 500 soldiers, of whom 300 were students with no prior combat experience. The youngest of these soldiers was only in the sixth grade. A division led by Petlura raced to join the volunteers at Kruti, but they could not make it there in time. News of the unrest in Kiev forced them to return to the capital. The Battle of Kruti lasted only five hours and resulted in a tactical victory for the Soviets. Over half the Ukrainian force was killed in battle, while the Soviets lost a similar number. Crucially, however, the defense of Kruti brought the Central Rada valuable time, which they would use to evacuate the capital. The Battle of Kruti has since taken on a special significance to anti-communist Ukrainians. Today, a monument to the defenders of Kruti stands at the location of the battle. 
As the Ukrainians put up their valiant defense at Kruti, Petlura's division raced back to Kiev ahead of Soviet forces. They re-entered the city on February 1st, and within a day they were able to restore the authority of the Central Rada throughout most of the city, save for the arsenal itself. A tense standoff ensued as Petlura's forces surrounded the arsenal and besieged the Bolsheviks within. Finally, on the morning of February 4th, with Moraviev's army within striking distance of Kiev, Petlura ordered a frontal assault on the arsenal. The defenders, who were hopelessly outnumbered, were compelled to surrender. Exact casualty figures do not exist for this battle, although all sources indicate that it was an immensely bloody affair, with hundreds dead on both sides. Just as the Battle of Kruti took on a special significance for Ukrainian nationalists, the Kiev Arsenal uprising took on a similar significance for pro-Soviet Ukrainians. During the Soviet era, the events of the uprising were greatly mythologized, thanks in large part to a 1929 film by Ukrainian director Alexander Dovshenko, appropriately entitled Arsenal. The uprising severely weakened the fighting capacity of Petlura's forces, making the city ever more vulnerable to the Soviets. On February 4th, Moraviev's army arrived on the outskirts of Kiev and commenced an intense artillery bombardment of the city. The battle for Kiev had begun. As Petlura and his men raced to defend Kiev, negotiations between the representatives of the UNR and of the Central Powers were entering their final stages. It was surely a tense scene as the Ukrainian delegates came face-to-face with their Bolshevik counterparts at Brest-Litovsk. Apparently Trotsky himself was rather cordial to the Ukrainian delegates, reiterating to them Lenin's promise that the Ukrainians were free to secede, although this attitude was perhaps due to an underlying assumption that the Central Rada would submit itself to Soviet authority sooner rather than later. Trotsky's intransigence with the Central Powers negotiators led them to recognize the UNR delegates as the sole representatives of the Ukrainian nation. This suggested to the Soviets that the Ukrainians were intent on signing a separate peace with the Central Powers. In hope of forestalling this, Trotsky telegrammed Kharkov and invited two members of the Ukrainian Soviet Republic's government to participate in the peace conference as the legitimate representatives of the Ukrainian people. The Central Powers did not take this claim seriously and continued to negotiate with the Central Rada's representatives. Following the issuing of the Fourth Universal and the subsequent shakeup in the Ukrainian government, the former head of the UNR delegation, Vesvolod Holobovich, was replaced by Oleksandr Servyuk. Upon arriving at Breslatovsk, Servyuk, a hot-headed 25-year-old, subjected the Soviet delegation to a fierce tirade. Quote, the Bolsheviks, in order to prevent the fulfillment of the principle of self-determination of nations, have not only employed bands of mercenary Red Guards, but are stifling the press and dispersing political meetings, arresting and shooting political leaders, and are finally attempting with totally falsely interpreted information, to undermine the authority of the governments of the various young republics. Prominent socialists and old revolutionaries are being accused of being bourgeois and counter-revolutionary. In this way, the Bolshevik government gives life not to the right of self-determination, but to the principle of anarchy and decomposition, because it knows that it is easier to destroy than it is to create anew. The struggle of the Petrograd government against the government of the Ukrainian People's Republic and its obvious insecurity in recognizing our delegation aroused in us previously a not unfounded suspicion. We were convinced that Mr. Trotsky would soon attempt to free himself from the very lucid and definite words with which he accepted our delegation as the legally constituted organ of the Republic. That which we have awaited has come true. On this day, on which we left for Kiev to receive final instructions, there arrived in Brest via Petrograd and Dvinsk, with the encouragement and aid of the Bolsheviks, a new, only nominally Ukrainian delegation, which had as its purpose of undermining our authority in the eyes of the toiling masses of Europe. 
end quote. The artillery bombardment of Kiev, which as of February 9th was entering its 11th straight day, had destroyed, among other things, the telegraph lines which enabled the Central Rada to communicate with its representatives at Brest-Litovsk. Cut off from their government, the Ukrainian delegation concluded a peace treaty with the Central Powers in the early hours of February 9th, 1918. The Ukrainian delegates hardly had time to revel in this accomplishment. Within mere hours of the signing of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, they received a devastating piece of news. Kiev had fallen to the Soviets. The Central Rada and what remained of its army had relocated to the city of Zidomir. On entering the capital, General Moraviev issued orders to, quote, but mercilessly destroy any officers, bandits, cadets, monarchists, and other enemies of the revolution in Kiev, end quote. Over the following two weeks, the population of Kiev fell victim to the Red Terror. Any and all who were suspected of loyalty either to the monarchy or to the Central Rada were targeted. It is hard to say for certain exactly how many were killed by Moraviev's men, although the figure I have seen cited most frequently is 5,000. Of these, the majority were former officers of the Tsarist army, Moraviev's former comrades. Kiev had become a sort of refuge for Tsarist officers fleeing from Bolshevik persecution. Ukrainian authorities, wary of these officers' intentions, had required them to obtain residence permits. These red-colored cards were used by the marauding Soviet soldiers to easily mark these officers for death. And it is there that I will end things for today. With the Soviets in control of the Ukrainian capital and the Central Rada on the run and the Central Powers poised to intervene, what would happen next? You'll have to tune in again in two weeks to find out. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or anything else of that nature that you'd like me to address, please feel free to email me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can always reach me via Twitter or Facebook, links to both of which can be found in this episode's description. Anyway, until two weeks from now, this has been the Historia Dramatica Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I'm your host, Mullen Connor, signing off.